Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Happy long weekend. I'm up here earlier than I've ever been up here, I think, so I'm making a promise to you we're going to be done on time, maybe even a bit early. Does that sound good? It's a long weekend, it's supposed to be a beautiful day, the sun's already come out, and I have one point to make, one book in the Bible we're going to look at today, uh, and it's the book of Ezra, so if you want to turn there to the book of Ezra. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they're all contemporaries of one another. Today we're talking about returning, rebuilding, and removing. The three R's. Triple R. Um, I had mentioned that I wanted this sermon to set the tone for our Say Yes campaign that's starting just next week. We're doing three weeks conversation on our core value of engagement. That includes three weeks of teaching through our three core values, truth, community, engagement. It includes a spiritual gift assessment tool. We want our church to know their spiritual gifts so that they can be using their spiritual gifts. It also includes a ministry inventory. Uh, we have volunteers and team who've done the work of reaching out to our leadership team, our leaders of volunteers, and making an inventory list of all the areas in our ministry, to the best of our ability, where you can serve, where there are opportunities to plug in and to serve and to engage in the ministry and the mission of the church. And we're going to have that in display in the lobby. We're going to have printouts that you can take home. We're going to have that spiritual gift assessment tool that you can take home. And the big idea behind this whole thing, the big goal is to engage in the conversation around engagement, to have a chat. I don't know about you, but I think Maybe it makes the hair stand on the back of your neck a little bit or your blood pressure rise. Maybe your heart starts racing when you hear a campaign called Say Yes. What are they going to get me to do now, right? It's like when the ministry leader walks through the lobby with a clipboard and it's like, oh, avoid that person. That's what we're going to talk about. And we want to have fun with this. We want to take the tension out of the air when it comes to serving. Now, what we're going to talk about today in the book of Ezra, I wanted to set the tone and the framework for the next three weeks with this campaign. Because if we go through this campaign and the idea that you get is, I just need to do more, I just need to serve more, I need to give more, I need to be at the church more, that person's doing that much, I need to do that much, or I need to do more, the pastor just wants me to do more, the ministry team needs more people, I feel shame, I feel guilt, I just feel duty and obligation... If you go through these three weeks and that's what you get from it, then we've missed the point. If we have people sign up to serve in volunteer positions out of duty and obligation, it's not going to last. And we've missed the main point. So we want to engage in a conversation around engagement, and we're going to set the framework for that today. So are you at the book of Ezra? Did I say Esther? I might say Esther a number of times. I was doing that as I was uh, going over my sermon. The book of Ezra. Now, there are three main subjects in the book of Ezra. Can you guess what they are? <laughs> Man, so good, so quick. Return, rebuild, remove. So, here's the context for the book of Ezra. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom first, 
then the southern kingdom a while later, were led into captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. You remember old King Neb? We've heard lots about him. He's a pretty popular subject in the Old Testament. This Babylonian captivity, prophecy says 70 years. King Cyrus comes in of the Persians. He takes over in the first year of his reign. They start this return process. All the exiles who were taken captive, now there's freedom to return back to their homeland and to start rebuilding and to start removing. Could I have somebody shut the door at the back there? Would that be okay? Those kids, they're just having so much fun up there. Return, rebuild, remove. So here's the thing about returning. When Nebuchadnezzar led the Israelites into captivity, not every Israelite went into captivity. Thank you, John. And then when Cyrus said, you can now start the return, not every Israelite returned. And the ones who did return, didn't return all at once. In fact, it was, it was over decades that this return took place. The great diaspora of the Jews. The return didn't take place under one king, but many kings. It didn't take place under one leader, but many leaders. It didn't take place for one purpose, but many purposes. And over this period of time, this big process, the Jewish people started to return back to their homeland. Does that sound familiar? The great return to church? You know, we talk about the church as an event on Sunday. We talk about the church as a building. We talk about the church as the people. We know that the church is the people, but sometimes we get our language a little mixed up and we say, when are you coming back to church, right? The last two years, the church has been scattered, physically scattered. We've been in our homes been on lockdown. There was a period of time where there wasn't anybody in this facility, and it was eerie. It was creepy to walk through here, doing my Wednesday night Bible studies online through the book of Ephesians. You remember that? I think the first week we had like, I don't know what it was. It was hundreds of people tuning in, and then by the last week it was 12 people. Once the, uh, <laughs> once, once the excitement of the whole online experience wore off 12 weeks later, you remember that? And it was just the pastors, and, and we were doing it live with one or two tech people, and then the band could be here on Sunday, so it was the band, the pastors, the tech people. Then we could have 50 people. Oh, yeah, so we set up tables with chairs around them. You remember that? We had 50 people attending. You had to pre-register, and then 75, and then 100. And then summer came, and we could have outdoor events, so more people came, and we had a drive-in concert, and we had baptisms in the pool down here. You remember that? And then it was back to just the pastors recording on a Thursday and trying to be excited about the Celebration Sunday service on a Thursday morning when it's just me and Alex and Steve in the auditorium and then more people could come. And now we have people in the room. We have people participating online. Last Sunday, we had 39 screens viewing, which in our calculations of two and a half people per screen is 97 people participating online last Sunday. You may not know that. We have people traveling on the long weekend. Maybe you're at the campground. Maybe you're here at your cottage, so you came in person. The church is spread out. Some have returned in person. Some are choosing to remain online. New people have come to our ministry through this season. People have gone to other ministries through this season, and we wish them all the best. But we're in this kind of return process, aren't we? I would love for God to say, 
here is the correct time to return. And here's the people who should really return in person. And here's the people who should probably remain online. And if God would just clarify all that for us, wouldn't that be great? Because I let my mind run sometimes and I think, man, there are people who are probably participating online today who are still in their pajamas, enjoying their time from the comfort of their home. And I let my mind wander that direction. And I forget all of the people participating online who have compromised immune systems, who have people that they're caring for, who have people in hospital that they visit multiple times a week. We have people who participate online for the right reasons and they don't have other options. We have people who participate online who were shut-ins before shut-ins was a cool thing to be. And now they have this option and we want to continue to provide that. We have people participating in the room. Wouldn't it be great if God just showed up and said, it's time to return and here's what returning looked like and here's what the in-person ministry looks like and the online ministry and here's how they work. I would love for God to clarify all that for me. Wouldn't you? And then the book of Ezra, as they return, they get into this rebuilding mode. First of all, under Zerubbabel, you can see all the people who returned in Ezra chapter two. It's this big list of all these people who returned and under Zerubbabel's leadership and then Joshua, the high priest, they start to rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation. First, they build the altar. We're gonna chat about some of that. We're in a rebuilding season as a church, aren't we? Not just from the pandemic, not just returning after two years of not doing what we always did and now it's like, what are we gonna do? Are we just gonna do what we always did? Are there new things we wanna do? What do the ministry teams look like that used to do this two years ago? Are they still in effect two years now? But also we're in this generational shift. We've made a lot of old jokes on poor Pastor Steve. And he's stepped into the associate role and he and Florence are on their sabbatical now. And when he returns, he's gonna be in this support role for a few years before retirement. Steve can't always do what Steve always did. Keith isn't gonna be the only usher on the door forever. We're not always gonna have arts expertise in the tech booth. The birds aren't always gonna be able to host the bird's nest life group. bird's nest. I love that. (laughs) There's a, a generational shift that has always needed to happen across time and eternity because we are a generational church. And those kids over there, they're going to be the next generation to lead this church. So this rebuilding shift needs to happen. And we are in this rebuilding season, aren't we? Then the final big subject through the book of Ezra, and then we're going to dig into some verses, and then I'm done because I just want to make one point after we chat through this, is to remove all of the false idols, all of the pagan worship 
There's this whole weird conversation about intermarriage and the children that came from that because God wanted them to be his people. He was jealous for them, the Bible says, and he wanted them to be set apart, sanctified, not mixing with the customs and the religions of the people in the land of Canaan. You remember that conquest with Joshua and they drove out the nations because he wanted this pure people set apart for his purpose and for his mission. That's a tricky, delicate subject that we're going to chat about. But the big idea is God wanted the people for himself. But the people had gotten comfortable and complacent and allowed all these other things and other idols into their life that they had to remove. Pastor Jeff Eastwood from Grace in Charlottetown, PEI, he made this comment. I've heard him made it a few times through COVID, and it just gave so much clarity to me. COVID didn't cause the issues it revealed the issues that were already there. Isn't that so true? When we were stuck at home and it was just us or our spouse and our kids, and we were just stuck with ourselves, didn't it reveal some issues to you? Issues in your heart that you didn't realize you had until you slowed down and you were forced to sit with yourself? We're in this removal season where we're looking at the ministry and we're thinking, do we want to do everything the way we did it two years ago? Or are there some things we're engaged in as a church? Are there some things we've grown comfortable and complacent with over the last two years that we need to confess and release and give over to God so that we don't have all this excess baggage as we're trying to pursue his mission? If we're doing things as a church that don't aid in the mission of getting the gospel into this community, into our hearts and lives, then we shouldn't be doing them. And if there are things that we're doing that are detracting from that, then we need to confess, we need to repent, and we need to give those things up. No sacred cow should stand. So those are the three big subjects through the book of Ezra. There's my overview. And the question comes down to, when is it right to return and what does that look like for Faith Baptist Church? What do we want Faith Baptist Church to look like? What ministries do we want to pour our time and effort and energy into? And what would God have us to be in this season? How should we rebuild? And then what is it that we've grown comfortable and complacent in and we've just kind of fallen into a rut that God's saying, you need to confess and repent of that so you can move forward in my mission. You ready for the answer? Here's my main point. I don't know. (laughs) Is that a good main point or what? Isn't that just, oh, I just feel the weight come off my shoulders. I don't know. I really don't. I'm not trying to make a joke. But there is somebody who does. And if he guides and directs, if it's God's will, then nothing can stop it. And if it's not God's will, then we can't force it. I heard Pastor Craig Rochelle say that, and I love it. If it's God's will, you're not going to stop it. If it's not God's will, then you can't force it. Try as you might. Try as I might. So are you ready to dig into the book? 
I've read through this book a few times in preparation for this sermon and one key thought kept jumping out at me. I think it's the theme, the big idea of the book. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. I didn't take the time to count every time, but it's a lot, a lot of times. And that's all I want to look at today is this idea of God's will, God's hand upon them, God stirring their heart to return, to rebuild, and to remove. And this is the framework I want us to have as we go into the Say Yes campaign, that God would be the one to lay it on our hearts, that his hand would be upon us, and that he would stir the spirit within us to say yes. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. The Lord, it's the tetragrammaton, it means Jehovah, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Trinity. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. The Lord stirred up the spirit of a pagan king. Do you remember Mother's Day? We talked about how Pharaoh paid Jochebed to raise the kid that Pharaoh did not want to have, who ended up being the one to free his people from slavery in Egypt. Is it possible that God can move the heart of a king, a government, a culture, a nation to do his will? Doesn't that blow your mind? You ready to have your mind blown? My mind was blown. Here we go. See this thing? It's not a cucumber or a, I don't know. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it was dug up by British archaeologists in 1879. And it dates back to the 6th century BC. And Cyrus the Great is all over this. In fact, this thing is covered in writing, cuneiform writing, I think they call it. You can see it at the British Museum right now, apparently. With all of his decrees from his first year of reign. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year, God stirred his heart. He made a decree. That decree is written on this cylinder that you can read today. You can read the translation of it, but they found it. I don't know if that's God's word confirming archaeology and history, or if that's archaeology and history confirming God's word, but nonetheless, it's true. How cool is that? And even more so than that, God stirred the heart of Cyrus. That was his plan 100 years prior We find it written in Jeremiah and then again in Isaiah. Let me read these for you. You know these verses, but maybe you've missed the context, like I've missed the context time and time again. Jeremiah 29, verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, for that captivity where the Israelites were led away captive to exile, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 70 years. There's the time frame. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to lead you back. He did that through Cyrus. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. This is a hundred years before Cyrus lived. Can you believe that? People who study the written after these events took place because it's so accurate. How could Isaiah name the person who's going to free the exiled Jews 
a hundred years before it took place. Cyrus, for the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me, because he's a pagan king. That's just incredible. God shifted the hearts of pagan governments to accomplish his will to free his people. Look at, back to Ezra chapter 1 and verse 5. After King Cyrus gives this decree, God stirs his heart, then rose up the heads of fathers' houses, of Judah, Benjamin, priests, Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. God's spirit not only stirred the heart of the king, but it stirred the hearts of the people who went to return to rebuild. How do you think that whole context and conversation went? Cyrus says, you're now free to return, take a group, start rebuilding that temple. And then certain people in exile, the Israelites, God stirs their heart to follow Zerubbabel and Joshua to go back and to rebuild the temple. But there are Israelites in exile whose hearts weren't stirred, who didn't return. They didn't all return at this point. I wonder if there would be any sort of inclination that those people were just scaredy cats. They just didn't have enough faith. Maybe the other side of the issue was, seriously, you're going to return? You know it's not safe, right? You know, it's, you might be rushing this, right? And there's this conflict that goes back and forth. We're, we're the Israelites in whose heart God stirred their spirit to return. Were they more faithful than the other Israelites? Were they more sanctified? Did they have more courage? Well, you know, one of the Israelites who didn't return, you probably recognize his name, his name's Daniel. Daniel was a courageous guy, wasn't he? We're talking about Daniel in the lion's den. He's no scaredy cat, right? Pun intended. He didn't return. Why not? God was certainly working in his heart, right? But God didn't stir his heart to return to rebuild in Jerusalem. I just thought it was an interesting thought. Let's jump to chapter 2 and verse 59 of the book of Ezra. The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, Immer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descendants, whether they actually belonged to Israel. Think about this. God stirs the heart of a pagan king to release the people. Then some of the Israelites have a stirring in their heart to return. But then there's also these people who can't prove their lineage and ancestry back to Israel, but yet God stirred in their hearts to return as well. Is that not interesting? God not only works in the heart of a pagan king or in the heart of his people, but in the heart of these other people who can't prove that they're Israelites, but they, they return, they rebuild. And then the people gather as one man in Jerusalem, it says, to start this rebuilding process. I love the picture of unity, one man. Unity, direction, vision, a common mission. Why? Because God had initiated it. God stirred it 
in their hearts. It happened naturally, supernaturally, as God imposed it in their hearts and they arrived. They didn't have to be persuaded. They didn't have to be whipped. They didn't need somebody coming around with a clipboard saying, hey, could you show up in Jerusalem? Here's what we're going to work on. God stirred it in their hearts. And they arrived to the task as one man. They laid that first stone in the foundation and then there's like this responsive worship service. They just break into song. And then as they're laying this foundation, I think it's the end of chapter three, that last stone goes in and there's all this singing and rejoicing, praise and worship. But then at the same time, there's this really interesting dynamic. There's the previous generation who had seen the grandeur and the glory of the former temple. And now they're seeing the footprint of the new temple. And it's not as good as the one back in the day. It's not like the glory days. It's not like back in my day. And they start weeping. And Ezra records that the weeping was so loud and the singing was so loud that you couldn't tell the two apart. Picture this ceremony. The last stone goes in. This is what they've returned to do. The foundation's now built. Now they can start erecting the walls. And you have people rejoicing and singing and clapping. And then you have the older generation crying and mourning and weeping because it's not as good as back in the day. I'm not quite sure how to apply that. We tend to get stuck on the way things were, don't we? The good old days. We miss out on what God is doing today because we're so focused on what God did back in the day, back in the glory days, the good old days, when ministry was ministry, right? When men were men. The work on the temples halted for a long time. There's discouragement, there's fear, there's frustration, there's bribes, there's accusation. The Samaritans, they circulate these letters back and forth with Persia. And they're like, do you know what the Jews are doing down here? Did you say that they could do that? Did you give them permission? Do you know that they're going to grow and build strong? And then they're going to become a thorn in your side, Persia? Did you think about this? So the Persian king writes back and says, no, we, we better stop. Um, but God stirs the people's hearts to get going all over again. Look at Ezra chapter five and verse one. The prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, you know those names. These are all contemporaries in the same time. The son of Edo, they prophesied. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Josedek, arose, began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What does it mean for them to prophesy? Well, the prophets were God's men carrying God's message to God's people. They heard the word of God through the prophets and it stirred their hearts to get back at it and start rebuilding. And they go back at the project. Jump to chapter six and look at verse eight. There's more letters circulate. And the Jews are telling the Samaritans, you check back in with the Persians and remind them of Cyrus. Remind them of Cyrus' cylinder. Remind them of Cyrus' decree. Go back, dig into the historical records, and you will find it. And that's exactly what they do. I think King Artaxerxes is the king who's leading now. King Darius is uh, leading now. 
And he basically says, leave the work of God alone. Let it happen. This is God's work. Look at verse eight. Moreover, beyond this, beyond just letting it happen, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. The Samaritans try and get in there and say, hey, we can't stand these Jews. Let's write to Persia. Let's get this thing stopped. And then the Jews say, hey, Persia, check your historical records. They find Cyrus' decree and Darius says, oh, I'm sorry. Keep the work going. And now we're going to fund it. Isn't that awesome? Do you see how God is, is stirring in the heart? He's making this thing happen when all hope seems lost and they call for a halt, whatever's needed. You need animals for offerings? You got them. You need food for the priests? You got them. You need supplies every day? You got it. Daily supplies. It's all yours, straight from the hand of King Darius. I wonder if Daniel, who is a wise man for King Darius, is whispering some of this into King Darius' ear. I wonder if God is working through Daniel, God's man, placed next to King Darius of the Medes and Persians, and he is using him to stir the heart of King Darius to make this return, rebuild, and removal happen in his homeland. I'm sure God has him there for a reason. I'm sure he's involved. Whatever's needed, it's yours. Jump to chapter 6 and verse 14. They've finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Uh, We're missing one of the kings in there. His name was Xerxes, and he's the king who married Esther. Remember that story? See how these tie together in the time frame? Through all these kings, God stirred in their heart, gave their decree, but ultimately, it's God's decree, isn't it? God's word, the stirring of God's will may come through God's man in the moment or God's woman for the moment. We see that time and time again with the prophets through the Old Testament. But ultimately, it's God's decree for his people. That was the first section of Ezra. Zerubbabel, Joshua, the building of the house of the Lord. Chapter 7 arrives, and it's in Ezra's own writing, his own personal experience, and you know what happens? We have more and more and more references to the stirring of God's spirit because Ezra is experiencing this personally. He's not recording the stories from Joshua, from Zerubbabel, He's recording his personal story and he's writing how God is working in his heart and how God's hand is on his life. And it's like we have twice as many occurrences of this whole idea of God's will leading and pushing his spirit moving and stirring. Because it's a personal experience, isn't it? I don't know if God is stirring in your heart. Maybe you don't know if God is stirring in my heart. Potentially it's between you and God. How is God stirring in your heart? Jump to chapter 7 and verse 6. This is some 50 years later when Ezra is leading a group back to continue to rebuild. The Lord had made them joyful, turned the heart of the king of Syria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. 
I love how God can turn the hearts of kings. Verse six of Ezra chapter seven. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. Isn't that beautiful? Ezra's a scribe. He's skilled in the laws of God. He loves the law of God. Look at this next verse, verse nine. The good hand of his God was upon him. The good hand, I love that. It's not a hand of judgment. It's not a hand of oppression. It's not a heavy burdensome weight. It's the good hand of God. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I think in James chapter five, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Here's this guy, Ezra. He loves the law of God. He's given his life, his profession to studying the law of God, to be a scribe. But he doesn't just study the law. He does the law. He applies the law. And if anybody doesn't know the law, he teaches the law. And if people are stepping out of the law, he shows them the rules. He gives correction. This Ezra went, the good hand of God was upon him. Look at verse 18. This is the king speaking to Ezra. And look at what the king says in his decree. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold. Look, we're going to fund your trip. We're going to give you all the supplies you need. And if there is extra, do whatever seems good to you, to your men. Can you imagine a Persian king saying that? Yeah, if there's surplus, instead of returning it to the royal treasury, just use it for whatever seems good to you, to you and your men. Do with the rest of the silver and gold. You may do according to the will of your God, the will of your God. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Maybe that's some of the motivating factor as to why the king spoke the way he did and how God worked in his heart. What kind of king would say whatever? Take the extra money and use it as you please, according to the will of your God. I love what Artaxerxes tells Ezra next. Verse 25, you Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that's in your hand. Do you realize we have the wisdom, the word of God in our hand and available and accessible to us today? Ezra loved the word of God. Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God. Those who don't know them, you shall teach them. This is what Ezra is all about. Appoint leaders, recruit workers, have people who can give oversight. If they don't know the law, teach them. If they need correction, give them the law. Train up these leaders, give them oversight. Verse 27, chapter 7, and then we'll move on to the next chapter. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Have you ever experienced the hand of God on you? Do you know what that feels like? To have this supernatural courage because you know that God is with you. Have you experienced that? Chapter 8, God's hand is on Ezra. Ezra chapter 8 and verse 18. By the good hand of our God on us, 
they brought us a man of discretion, a priest from the tribe of Levi to lead in the temple. Verse 22, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Are you getting the point that I'm trying to make? Is this getting a little repetitive? God's good hand is on the people. They're experiencing success because God's hand is on them. They are getting to do all of this returning and rebuilding because God stirred in the heart over and over and over again. You can't miss it. Listen to this section. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we figured we should seek him, right? We fasted. We implored our God for this. And he listened to our entreaty. Do you think there's a way in which you can seek and you can invite and you can entreat the hand of God upon your life? Those who seek him, his good hand will be upon him. Those who forsake him, well, there's a hand of wrath and a hand of correction. Is there a way in which we can seek the hand of God on our life? That we can actually entreat it. We can actually plead for it. We can actually ask for it. Look at verse 31. The hand of our God was on us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy, from ambushes by the way. Have you felt the hand of God for protection in your life? This is the frame of mind I want us to be in for the next three weeks, that we would be following God's stirring in our heart, that we would wait for God to guide, to lead, for his hand to be upon us so that we can proceed, so that we can do his will. Seeking his presence. This, this is the last section I want to read for you and then I'm done this morning. Verse eight of Ezra chapter nine. They get into this really messy situation. There's intermarriage. The people have become complacent and comfortable And it's all about these false gods and false practices and pagan worship coming into the people of God that needs to be removed. But here's the thing. They didn't wait for God's direction. They didn't wait for God's hand. Ezra took the bad advice of one of the leaders in Israel and just went ahead and divorced all the foreign wives and sent their children packing. And it doesn't say in chapter 10 that God was in that. God hates divorce. God wants his people to be pure, but God hates divorce. Jesus' heart, pure and undefiled religion is this, the orphan, the widows, the orphan, the widows. Ezra just sits down and he starts to weep. And he cries all day long until the evening sacrifice, it says. And then here's one of his prayers that he prays. And it's this beautiful little glimpse into the hand of God working and the stirring of God in the human spirit. For a brief moment, a brief beautiful moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us this remnant, to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves. Yes, our God has forsaken us has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. It's like Ezra knows the moment is past. 
The people are complacent. They're comfortable. Instead of looking for God's will and God's direction and God's hand in this, they jump to conclusions and they get all the foreign wives out of there and all the kids out of there and they just act so quickly without seeking God's direction. And it's like Ezra knows the presence of God is no longer with them, that God's hand is no longer upon them. And he says, for this brief moment, for this brief, beautiful little moment, we experienced your hand on us. We experienced your favor. We know that your steadfast love will never forsake us, but that hand upon us, oh, how we want that hand upon us. We want God's reviving spirit. We want God's stirring spirit. We need God to lead and direct in this. So as we go through the next three weeks with the Say Yes campaign, we talk about what it means to be on mission, engaged in the mission, serving in the local church, what that looks like and what it should look like potentially for you. We need to pray that God would stir in our hearts, that God's hand would be upon us, that God would lead and guide and direct. Because the moment we jump ahead of God and try and force his will the way we think it should be done, all of a sudden that fellowship and that intimacy just dries up. And Ezra knows that beautiful brief moment of God's favor has come to a halt because the people grew callous, complacent, And they try to jump ahead and do God's work in their own strength without waiting for God's stirring and God's hand of direction. So let's let that be our prayer for today. Let me pray. God, we want your hand. We want your stirring in our hearts. God, we need you to work in us, to give us the vision, to give us the will to do it. God, we want you to stir the hearts of kings. God, shift the course of our government, I pray. God, may you radically change the direction of our nation because we know that you can turn the hearts of kings and presidents and prime ministers to do your will. God, thank you that you shifted the hearts of pagan kings to accomplish your plan for your people. God, thank you that you stirred it in the hearts of leaders, that you stirred it in the hearts of people to be all about your mission of rebuilding, returning to the land, setting up the sacrificial system, worship, festivals, Passover, to be set apart unto you again. God, if there are things in our lives that we need to remove, would you make that clear to us? God, if if you have a clear plan as to how we should rebuild in this season, we know that you do. We know that you know what ministry should be a priority in this season. Would you stir our hearts, would you lay our hand, your hand upon us that we would be all about your mission and that we would only be engaged in priorities, programs, events, relationships that aid in the mission of the gospel and nothing else, Father. God, if this is a season that you would have for us to return, return to your mission, return to your people, return to your place of worship, God, would you lay it on our hearts? God, we pray for the stirring of the Spirit. We thank you that you've placed your Spirit within us. We thank you that your presence never leaves us. We thank you for your steadfast love that is always with us, that you're always faithful to your promises. God, we want your hand of leading and direction, and we seek it. We want it, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.